Support is provided in part by Conway Shield. Those who answer the call and risk it all for the safety and well-being of others deserve someone willing to give their all in return. Conway Shield is built on the shoulders of three service legacies. Customizing the nation's very best firefighting shields has expanded to providing the most effective technology, tools, and training for today's fire and law leaders. Learn more at ConwayShield.com. Co-founders of the Mission Critical Team Institute, Dr. Preston Klein and Coleman Ruiz, are our guests in this episode of the Leadership Under Fire Optimizing Human Performance podcast. I'm host Patty Murphy. The interview you will hear in this episode was recorded in early 2019 at a Leadership Under Fire Optimizing Human Performance Summit in Annapolis, Maryland. The event was devoted to the concept of resilience, the ability to navigate adversity and absorb failure and loss in high-risk settings. The summit allowed leaders to explore the concept from the individual, team, and organizational level, as well as from a physical, mental, emotional, and moral perspective. Other Resilience Summit guests included FDNY Black Sunday survivor, firefighter Brendan Cauley, and Columbia University's Dr. George Bonanno. To help listeners gain context for each summit conversation, LUF founder Jason Bresler and I discussed our reflections shortly after the event. Let's listen in. Jason, if I had a dollar for every time I tell people about the Mission Critical Team Institute, (laughs) I swear, (laughs) I truly enjoy listening to the founders Coleman Ruiz and Dr. Preston Klein share their stories and impart their knowledge. Why was it important to you to include them in the 2019 summit? Coleman Ruiz and I went to school together as well as with with Jen Baker. Uh, Coleman, I believe, is two years uh, older than me. I knew who Coleman was, Mm -hmm. but... I, we didn't really have much in the way of a, rela- a relationship when we were in college. A few years ago, I traveled to the IMG Academy to attend the Leaders in Sport conference. And featured at a conference were Preston Klein and, and Coleman. What's really interesting is they're kind of like the odd couple because <laughs> Coleman is a super, super legit Navy SEAL, mm-hmm. uh, Naval Special Warfare Officer with a, a phenomenal reputation in the Naval Special Warfare community. And he carries himself like a quiet professional warrior who's incredibly cerebral. Then there's Preston, who's this like gregarious, animated, outgoing academician. Mm-hmm. UPenn, Wharton, very impressive academic pedigree. And there's just this energy to the to the two of them. And they complement each other in a really unique way. These two, there's just this really seamless mm-hmm. energy and it's it's so fun <laughs> it's it's really it's 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 fun to just sit there and, and listen to the two of them reflect because Coleman is talking about it through the eyes of a of an operator and then here's here's Preston talking about it through kind of an academic academic lens yeah they're masterful communicators and one thing i remembered is following the Q&A portion the long line of people who are waiting to get more time with them and once people listen to the episode, I think they'll understand why. So welcome to our first moderated discussion for today. If asked to improve the success, survivability, and sustainability of a mission-critical team, how would you do it? This is a question Coleman Ruiz and Dr. Preston Klein 
aim to answer with the Mission Critical Team Institute, which they co-founded. Preston has dedicated more than 30 years of academic research on human interaction with uncertainty, the question of why some people make it and others do not. Coleman spent 13 years on active duty in the US Navy SEALs, serving overseas during six combat deployments. While serving as a troop commander and a joint task force commander, Coleman led hundreds of operations and dozens of sensitive military programs. The result of this collaboration between researcher and practitioner, an opportunity to fully optimize performance potential. Preston Coleman, welcome. Thank you. So your paths crossed in 2011. Uh, you seem like an unlikely pair. <laughs> How did you meet and what kind of synthesis resulted in combining your efforts? Do you want to start? Sure. Uh, I was introduced uh, to Preston by a colleague of mine who had just He's either just retired or he wasn't even retired yet. A guy named Tommy Marr served in the SEAL teams for a full career, was eventually a chief warrant officer. And I was a budget instructor uh, at basic school back in 2005. And then I was an instructor at an advanced school down at Virginia Beach at Naval Special Warfare Development Group in 2008. And I had this, not everybody, probably like in many communities, like ours, not everybody has an opportunity to go to the training school, and I, and I did it twice. And I was having this chat with Tom about training, education, and development at our basic and advanced levels. And there's all the normal frustrations that we've all had who've had training jobs. The schoolhouse does this, this is too rigid, this doesn't work as well as we want to. You know, all this just general commentary. And Tom said, you should talk to Preston. So I remember sitting in my truck in Virginia Beach before I got out of the teams in the fall of 2011 and had my first phone call with Preston. He gave me the background on a paper he wrote while at Harvard called The Etymology of Risk, essentially the background of risk and how the definition of it and how we treat risk has changed. And of course, everybody in this room works in a complex, adaptive, emergent, like bizarre environment that has you know really, really weird factors just like we did. And as Preston was talking, I remember getting to the end of the conversation and just saying like, everything you said, we need all that in the teams and our instructor cadre and other units that I've worked with, and we don't have any of that. And what was that? That was the research, the methodology, the frameworks, the thinking, the understanding of what actually happens for an instructor cadre um, who comes back from an operational environment and has to move into a training environment. And so um, that's how we met. Yeah, my side of that story is that um, for a whole bunch of reasons, um, when I, I went to work for Wart, at Wharton for 10 years for helping to run their leadership program. And while I was there, I became increasingly fascinated with a question I've always been wondering, which is how do you teach people how to go into radically emergent events and be successful? How does that actually happen? And so for a whole bunch of reasons, mostly comical, um, I end up uh, applying to the doctoral program. And my whole plan was really basic. I was going to go to the most elite teams in the world. I was going to watch them instruct their candidates. And then I was going to write down that stuff. And I was going to go back to the library and write a dissertation. That was the plan. So I go down to Virginia Beach to where um, this is after uh, Coleman had already left. And this is before Coleman and I talked. And I get into the shoot house. Many of you probably are familiar with shoot houses. There are rooms like this, but there's no roof on them. And there's a, a walkway, catwalk above here. And you look down to these live fire exercises why they do hostage rescues. A lot like uh, burn buildings at fire academies kind of thing. 
And so um, I'm up there in the rafters with the most elite team in the world, and, um, and I watch a four-man team come in to do this hostage rescue, and at the end of it, they look up to the rafters to all these senior instructors. These guys are all legends, right? Navy SEALs, the best of the best, and i am got my little notebook, and I'm like really excited to write this down so I can get out of there. And uh, they lean down, and they're like, hey, douchebag, you suck, suck less. And they lean back, and they all nod to one another, like, nailed it. And I'm like, <laughs> I'm like, well, that's just deeply unhelpful. Like that's, A, he knows he sucks, and if he knew how to suck less, he would. I'm not sure of the point of any of that. And so I started asking people like, hey, like, what's your plan? And they're like, what do you mean? And I'm like, what do you mean, what do I mean? You guys are training people to do the most elite things. How are you doing it? And they're like, that's a really good question. I was like, yeah, you should be asking that. And they're like, how about you help us? I was like, okay. So. I reached out to Tom and Tom put me in charge in front of Coleman because I was like, Coleman, I don't get it. And Coleman to his point was like, neither do I. But here's the interesting thing. I've been in, I've uh, observed trauma. I've been with the FDNY and the and fires with Chief Pfeiffer and other things. I've been uh, FBI, I've been all over the world, um, what we call the five eyes, Canada, UK, Australia, New Zealand. And literally in every one of those environments, it's the same conversation. You suck, suck less. And so all I'm trying to do, all we're trying to do is get a better language, just to move it just a few feet closer to what, what Coleman would call mechanisms for specificity. So just ways that you can, when you see something that sucks, you're able to say, here's what I'm looking at and be able to articulate that. And then how do I fix it? Here's the words I can use to fix it. It sounds simple, really hard. Any of you, any of you have done it? So that leads into our next question, which is um, that your work aims to develop precise, as you said, and scientifically valid language to transfer tacit knowledge yep. to mission-critical teams. So first, what's your definition of a mission-critical team, and how do you identify the deficiency among instructor cadre charged with training them? Yeah, one of the frustrations, and Coleman, I want to get your thoughts on this, but one of the frustrations that I see with the teams is that a lot of the stuff that you're reading, if you are reading, was written by folks at Harvard and Wharton and Stanford to deal with what are called temporally unconstrained environments, meaning they're sitting in a boardroom and they have all the time in the world to make decisions, to have strategy, to think about tactics. You all have about 300 seconds or less. So the answer is mission critical teams are teams of about four to 12 people um, operating against complex adaptive problems in decision-making environments of 300 seconds or less. Why 300 seconds? That's about how much oxygen you have stored in your brain at any given time. If I choke you out right now and hold your airway, you've got about 300 seconds before cellular death starts to happen in your brain. It's why many of your units, when you think about your response times, when you think about what a hostage rescue is, a resuscitation in the hospital, it's why it's five minutes or less. And so for that, there's actually not a lot of research. Gary Klein's done some work. Um, uh, some other people have done some work, but most of the work is done in the five minutes and beyond, where there's a lot of time. And those two parts of the brain aren't the same parts of the brain, and they require different skill sets. Yeah, I mean, the only addition there, Patty, that I would include, and Preston's already brought it up, and going through the questions, I was thinking about this. Almost everybody in this room is going to be fairly familiar with Gary Klein's work and recognition prime decision-making, right, as opposed to Daniel Kahneman's, you know, system one, system two, slower thinking. And what, what I found almost immediately when, eight years ago, when we started yeah. doing work with, when I started getting involved with MCTI in a meaningful way was we were, we were mixing two thinking styles, just as Preston was describing, and there wasn't adequate understanding, at least inside of the teams. Look, 
great operators, just like great operators in here, and you come into a training role, and you're bringing all your great operational knowledge into that training role, but not necessarily fully understanding when you're on a target or you're on a fire or whoever, or, you're, or we're in a trauma room, what is actually happening with the human factors of this system that you have? Because there are limitations, as, all you, as everyone here knows, and we have to know what those limitations are, and it's better to know what mechanisms are operating the model than not. Now, we can't always circumvent those mechanisms. Sometimes evolution just catch up, catches up to us and we can't outrun physics and we make a bad decision because there's just too much pressure. But at least we know how to fix that in training because we know we're operating in this model, in this case, you know, recognition prime decision making. But what, I mean, I'll only speak for the, for the Navy. We used to have, you know, pre 9-11, we had these long 96 hour planning cycles and the mission planning documents were beautiful. And then post 9-11, when we started doing, you know, across the whole task force, 300 operations every month, like that whole slow, rational decision-making model was out the window because we had to do things so quickly. And that unsettled people initially until we figured out the new model, right? And the whole, one of the big points of MCTI is helping instructor cadre know what model they're working with. So this summit is centered on resilience. Preston, the scope of your research spans clinical and cognitive psychology, sociology, behavioral economics, neuroscience, and anthropology. Yep. Do you find these academic disciplines connect to or approach operational resilience the same way? And if, is there a field you prefer as it relates to resilience and absorbing <clears throat> loss? So just a one clarification, I clearly don't have expertise in all those areas. I'm not that guy. Right? What I have is a lot of friends <laughs> who are experts in those areas. And we do what's called collaborative inquiry. It's if we're doing research together, I'm not staring at you. You and I are staring at the problem. And you might be an operator or you might be a neuroscientist. The point is, is that we get a lot of views of the same thing. And so what, what that allows me to see is they see things other people can't see. So all of you live in silos, whether you want to or not, it's the nature of the work. And that means that you're going to know, have deep knowledge in some areas, and that's, that deep knowledge is going to prevent you from seeing some other things. And there's, his, there's, I mean, if you look at wind-driven fires and the tension between Chicago and FDNY in the last 15 years, that's a great example of how being right and understanding culture are two different things, right? And so... The same happens in academia. When you have psychologists who don't want to talk to sociologists who don't want to talk to neuroscientists. Because by doing that, um, it shows them to be less competent and therefore they're less confident. And what you don't want is a lot of academics walking around that are insecure because they're already insecure enough. And so it just breeds chaos. And so what you end up needing to do is um, the, the sort of exciting part of the work is getting them all just to agree on language. Do we all agree we're looking at this? And if we can all say that, then everybody from their independent places can start looking for solutions at that, as opposed to, I know the truth, the truth is this, everyone should just lock that in. There are no silver bullets and there never will be, not with human beings, they're too complicated. It's gonna require a team of very diverse people to solve any of your problems. And if anyone comes to you and they're like, hey, I've got this cool <coughs> neuroscience thing or this cool psychology, and we can answer your problems, kick them out the door, they're lying to you. Do you have any observations on that? Yeah, not specifically, <laughs> yes specifically, but not. Um, this, it's very anecdotal, but I observe it everywhere. You know, I, I was a college athlete, and then I went into SEAL teams, and then I went into business, and I have 
my role with MCTI as director of research, and I work, do some work in the human factors world, and so my life has taken me in all these different directions, and my favorite like anecdotal story on this topic about why we love collaborative inquiry and do believe it's you know, the way to work, because everyone in this room is an expert, is it's amazing when you sit down with a high-level coach in the pros or Division I, you sit down with a high-level business executive, you sit down with a high-level person who works in mission-critical teams, you name it, pick the category. And you say, is the, does, does the enemy change what they do in the field on a regular basis for a soldier? Yep, you get across-the-board agreement. Are the dynamics of, you know, are, are the dynamics of, say, fires change not all the time, but fairly regularly. And people go, yeah, stuff changes in the firewall. Okay, how about sports? Yep, stuff changes. How about the market and the business? Yep, stuff changes. How many things do you change as fast inside your business or your team? As fast as the enemy and the market and, and all the other stuff is changing, everybody goes, no, we can't change any of that stuff because of this. And you're like, okay. So the market and the enemy and the, and the opponent, they're all changing super fast and everyone agrees with that. But sitting in the seat, we don't want to change anything because we're so stuck on whatever it is that's keeping us where we are. And collaborative inquiry as a mechanism and all these other you know, worlds, sociology, uh, neuroscience, anthropology, they keep us honest in that respect. They make us change our thinking on a regular basis as fast as you know, the enemy's changing. And that's an important concept to challenge yourself uh, to think about. Can I tell one quick story about that? Yes, of course. So I'm going to stand up for this. So there's some good news about this too, right? And so one of the phenomenons that's happened to me a few times right now, I'm going to act it out, it's happened to me a few times around the world. And I'm going to give you a very, the first time it happened to me, but it's happened a couple of times now. And, and what I'm getting at is, is that sometimes it's not the big questions that matter, it's the dumbest questions that matter. And I'll show you what I mean. So I'm in Australia with the SSR. Everything in Australia will kill you. And so when they raise Australians to be special forces, they're really crazy because everything they had to live through the crocodiles and snakes and everything else. So there's this guy. He's like eight feet tall and like four feet wide, wide, and he's wearing full body armor. He's looking down at me. He's got a square jaw. He looks like a comic book character, right? And he's like the fiercest, most dangerous person I've ever met. And he's been watching me work with the cadre for a couple of days, and he hasn't really wanted to talk to me because those freaking professors don't know anything. But he's been listening, and he's like, now he's curious. So he lumbers over to me while no one's looking. He goes, hey, professor, can I ask you a question? I was like, yeah, what's up? And he goes, I'm working with this one candidate, and he can't seem to understand how to do room entry. It's driving me crazy. I don't know how to reach him. And I said, because I know nothing. I've never been in the military, so I don't know anything. So the way I do things is by starting at the very basics. So I turn to him, and I go, OK. I think, I think let's talk about it. He's like, okay. And I was like, well, let me start off by this. Why do you hold your rifle that way? And he looks down and he goes, why do I hold my rifle this way? <laughs> and he looks up and he goes, got it. And then walks away. <laughs> that was a real question for me. I didn't actually know why he held his gun that way. So I'm now dumber than I was when he walked up and he thinks I'm Obi-Wan Kenobi, right? <laughs> And he's like over to his buddies and they're like, oh, that's deep. And I'm like, no, no. I, but I guess what I'm saying is, is that inherent in this question is the complexity, and there is complexity. But I would remind you that there's a lot of really basic stuff that you take for granted that you don't even see anymore, that it's really helpful if you just ask, why do I lead with my left foot? Just ask questions like that, you'd be surprised how much improvement you can make with just knowing the basics. Thank you for those answers. <laughs> So then how do you define resilience at the tactical operational level in mission critical teams? Me? Go for it. Okay. This is how, these are my terms. I grew up as a three brothers, one sister. I grew up very young. My mom was like, Preston, you got to be able to take a hit and not cry, okay? Because you're going to get hit more. 
And I was like, okay, that's called robustness. Take a hit, not fall down. Okay, robust is take a hit, not fall down. That's how I grew up. As I got older, I met some very big dudes who were gonna hit me and I was gonna fall down. So I was told, you gotta get right back up. Gotta get back on the horse. Can't be sitting there just crying. Gotta get back up. That's resilient. Knock down, take a hit, knock down, get back up, fast. As I got older, brain started to kick in. I'm like, maybe I should just dodge the hit. Like, maybe don't be in the way of the fist, right? That's called mindfulness. Get out of the way of the hit, okay? Robustness, take a hit. Resilient, take a hit, fall down, get right back up. Mindful, get out of the way of the hit. A few years ago, I'm in Patagonia with a bunch of uh, Gen Xs or Millennials, right? And um, they were, I was raised, and what I privilege, what I prioritize is people who are robust, people that can take the hit. What they privilege and prioritize is people who are smart enough to not get hit, to be mindful. So we're standing in the rain, and I'm looking at them because they're a bunch of pansies because they want to go underneath the tarp, and they're looking at me like I'm too stupid to go underneath the tarp. And so when I think about resilience, I think about it along a continuum. It's not just about um, resilience and recovery. It's about understanding that there's not just one hammer for the problem. You have a bunch of ways that you can navigate any challenge, and resilience is only one element of that. Fair? It seems a little bit like a loaded word you know, in 2019 because it's everywhere and people feel differently about it, which is not a bad thing. But um, as a matter of you know, personal example, as an operator, I was just talking to some midshipmen at the Naval Academy just the other day as a, a guest lecturing in one of the uh, Marine Corps practicum courses, and we actually had this conversation. And I was sharing with them that uh, my entire life as an athlete and in the SEAL teams and all, everything I knew, and I'm sure somebody in this room will identify with this, was go longer for harder with more intensity. And if I just go longer and harder with more intensity than every other person, I'm going to be good. Things will work out. And they did until they stopped working out. Because you don't, we, we don't have to have robustness or resilience or mindfulness for every single you know, environment we're in. It is a continuum. And I think at different points, what, what makes me nervous about any organization or person, Patty, like this topic of recovery, which I know we'll touch, and resilience, is that what I find more often than not is in MCTs, we take, because it's what we learn early on in basic, whatever the ba equivalent of someone's basic is, is go longer for harder with more intensity, and we take that into every single portion of our job and our life, and that's really bad. You know, what measures makes it bad? I don't know, but eventually, one of my favorite quotes is, we're, we're trapped by physics, and I say it a lot because we are. Like, your cells can only hold so much water, you can only eat so much food, you only carry so much glucose in your liver, like, it's all a human factors, human factors kind of perspective, but the point is that, like, from a human factor standpoint, resilience alone, biologically, your adrenal, your adrenal glands have a limit. You're not a RoboCop. You know, your hypothalamus has a limit. Like, there's some physics we're dealing with here, and we can kind of hit the brick wall at different points organizationally and individually if we're not careful about go longer for harder with more intensity because eventually you run out of time, you know? Right, so there, are there any models or concepts that you're working with that are supportive of building? You should um, open yep. probably residue now. So, um, I'm gonna to try to make this story as brief as possible. I was at a Wounded Warrior event about six or eight months ago, and um, the actor Tom Hardy was there. He was in the movie Spawn, some of you might know him. Um, we got to talking, it turns out that he had actually read some of my research, which was super surprising to me. Um, and he asked if why I wasn't writing on this concept of residue, and I had never heard this term before. And he says that actors, professional actors who are character actors, he described it this way. Let's say I'm playing Abraham Lincoln one day, right? Or Bane and Batman. And then I have to go from Bane to Batman and play Abraham Lincoln. 
Well, you got to get rid of all of Bain because if I show up as Bain Abraham Lincoln, it will just look stupid. So I got to fully embrace Abraham Lincoln. But the question is, how do I get rid of the residue of Bain? Now, remember, I'm at a Wounded Warriors event. I'm surrounded by people filled with residue from events. And so we started interviewing psychologists, operators, and all these other people, and we started to realize that too often what's happening is your life experiences are often being characterized as trauma. 200 years ago, it wouldn't have been trauma. It's just life, right? But today, you are survivors of something. And so, or you're, you're made pathological, you're made as a victim of something, or an injury or something. We're trying to change the languages to say, you've had a lot of experiences that make you who you are because you've been able to process them and build upon them, right? But the question is, how do we turn these experiences into strengths rather than as anchors? And what are the life lessons that maybe actors or others can teach us so that when we take everything from having a beautiful baby to your first kiss to, to watching your friend die, how do we take all those experiences and process them so that residue doesn't build up over time? Residue isn't good nor bad. It's just the aftermath of experience. And so there's a group of people we're doing research right now. We're happy to share it with any of you. We're looking for comments on ways, a strength-based way in which people are able to process residue. And what we're finding is really basic stuff, exercise, diet, food, but also things like music, spending time in wilderness, other of these things we're calling protective factors. So that's the research we're excited about right now. It's just changing the conversation from one of you're broken to no, you just got punched in the face. That didn't break you. It sucks, but we got to figure out a way to make that, turn that into a strength, a story you can tell to make you better. Anything on that? Yeah. So, um, after action reviews are a huge part of any mission critical team, how do you, how do after action reviews influence or impact resilience, especially after a mission or task was arguably unsuccessful? And do you have any rules for AARs? Yeah, we, we wrote a document on this as well, um, which we keep. Before I jump to that, let me just remind the whole group. If you go to our website, you'll see one of the, one of the models that Preston's PhD research was based on that we work off of is called the DR4 model. Detection, recognition, reaction, response, recovery. And in athletics and in this world, the most often neglected is the last one. It's back to this residue recovery thing. We do, we, I mean, we do amazingly at detection. Everybody in this room does. And you can recognize the problem, and we can all react, react really fast. Our training is essentially teaching us to do that, obviously. We respond, generally speaking, okay. We tend to react better, actually, because that's you know the kind of people we are. And the recovery, we just think is, oh, it's cool. Like, I'll take a nap and I'm recovered. And so that's just a, you know, a reminder. And it's why recovery is in the model. Uh, worked with a, a marathon physiologist and a bunch of other guys who, who were on the Nike Breaking 2 project um, when they tried to break the two-hour. And before and after the Nike Breaking 2 project, there was a huge meta-analysis done on running on uh, where are the, these world-class runners now in terms of mechanics, VO2 max, all the obvious stuff, right? And there was almost nothing that the coaches could do, almost nothing that they could do on running mechanics, physiology, VO2 training to increase marathon speed at all. The number one factor that would have improved every single one of the guys running the marathon, like fill in the blank, it would have been more recovery. Why is that? Probably because at the super elite level, like you guys are and for us in the teams and these guys running marathons at nearly two hours, or take LeBron James, for example, my guess is, using the athletic example, someone operating at that elite level, 
I mean, is Kipchoge really going to improve his mechanics that much at this point in his career? He was the marathoner who almost broke the two hours. Probably not. But physiologically speaking, for my human factors junkies in here, if he rests and tapers well, I mean, it's a game changer, you know. But his stride isn't going to improve that much. I think that's the case for us in specific things that we do and in general things that we do. The more recovery, the better. Um, in terms of... You know, AARs, it's been said that creativity is the way that we embed knowledge. And, and think about AAR, just from a practical level, is actually an extremely creative environment. You have this planning that's fairly scripted. We kind of know how to plan in our respective worlds and MCTs. Everybody can tell you how they plan. Almost everybody can tell you how they execute. Now, whether it goes well or badly is another thing. That's, it's a complex environment. There's a lot of factors, obviously, that determine how successful you know, an operation is for us. But the aftermath of that is like a, it's this huge whiteboard, wild AAR session on, and the, the, the most striking example I can give from my own time in Iraq and Afghanistan as a troop commander, I remember coming back from, I mean, we were just so, so disciplined about our AAR for this one big reason, and I'm sure everybody in this room will be able to identify with this, where the command and control element is where Alpha Team, Bravo Team, Charlie Team might be on a target, just like on a baseball team, for example. Visually, we're limited as humans. Where you're standing on a target is so geographically different where another group is just physically standing. Not only do they see the operation differently or felt it differently, no, no, they saw the whole target differently because one guy's on the roof, one guy's in the middle of the street. And so you imagine this team coming back or any one of your teams coming back from something extremely kinetic where emotions are high. Maybe people got hurt. Maybe people got killed. Hopefully they didn't. And to not get the whole team back in the room to say, okay, tell me where you were standing physically, and not like what you saw from an operational planning perspective. What did your eyes see? And, a, and you know, a sniper team will tell you well, the only thing we could see was this, this, and this. And it turns out that on some other side of the target, there's eight guys, a suicide bomber, and they never even saw them, right? So if, if you don't collect that knowledge in that aftermath, you're almost like repainting the picture. That's why I say creativity is a way to embed knowledge. There's almost no way for that team to effectively and collectively embed the knowledge from that experience and then just add that up over, again, from my view, it was four, five, six months at a time. We would do 60, 70 combat operations. All that knowledge, just flush it down the toilet. And so I personally would prefer to not plan at all, execute the mission and do the AAR. If I was forced to make a decision, I would jettison the planning before I would jettison the AAR. You have any observations nope. on that? So going back to recovery, what actions do you suggest to institutionalize that phase since it is so important? I've heard you say that um, you'll get the most training value out of recovery and the most accelerant off of that. Yeah, the, I mean, that's a hugely challenging one, right? Because I'm, we're not in everybody's institutions. Institutionally, you know, try convincing the chief that you need to take two days a week off or something. It's not really about time off. Um, the short answer is I don't know. I don't know how institutions do it. People have to decide for themselves. Uh, the first thing I would recommend that any institution try, though, is like a 1% you know, tiny experiment on if we were recovering better in some way as a team, physically, like let's get on the whiteboard and write down what we think better recovery leading into another operation, whatever your world is, like, and just pick three or five things. What would better recovery look like? What do we think it is? Pressure test that, and then test it. 
Test it. I mean, as an athlete, I can say unequivocally, with no question in my mind, I was overtrained my entire wrestling career in college, and I'm sure I would have been a better athlete if the coach just practiced us three days a week and not two days. Why? Because by the time you're at, you know, D1 level in athletics, like you're overtraining yourself. You're not ready to perform. It's why swimmers taper. And, you know, I would take that, that physical mentality of recovery and taper and bring it into the organization and pressure test what that might look like. Because my guess, in every company, team, military unit I've ever worked with, we made up more work than you could shake a stick at. You know, it was like, if there was more time in the day, we just made more work up. And that's not useful. <laughs> you know, because of my earlier argument, like your marginal gains are so tiny on your tactics that at that point that you're just wasting time. The, the other thing I would just throw out, there's very few things in the world I actually know. The one thing I do know is this. Every great team that I've ever seen is religious about their AARs. Every bad team I've ever seen either doesn't do AARs or does them in a punitive way. That's like universally true. Um, and so if you're doing AARs, do them not as a way to hammer dudes um, because it's actually counterproductive. Do it as a way to gain knowledge. Um, second thing I would say is um, we know that if we uh, don't get enough sleep, uh, we're, uh, after about two days, we're technically drunk. And if we know that in, to compensate for lack of sleep, we drink coffee, which dehydrates us, and we know that dehydration makes us angry. And so many of you are walking around your jobs drunk and angry almost all the time. So the thing I would ask you to think about is, and I know that some of you have an allergic reaction, freaking get over it. Go get a sleep study. I've done it. It doesn't hurt you. Just go get the data. You don't have to do anything. No one's going to handcuff you. Just go find out if you're actually sleeping through the night. Um, I stopped breathing 100 times an hour when I found out. Changed my life when I fixed it. Most operators after the age of 30, I'm not saying everybody's over the age of 30 in this room. Looks like some young, nice people in here. But if you are over 30, um, this is, this is going to impact you, whether you like it or not. Physics, physics wins. And so just get it checked out. And then just try to figure out how much water you need and try to do that every day for a week. Just try it out and see what happens in your attitude. I mean, as an institutional mob, I remember it took until, okay, so 9-11, let's get to 2011, 2010 maybe. So picture like the most elite SEAL team unit in Virginia Beach and everybody uh, thinks they're a RoboCop and a superhero, right? And I remember some like very senior, you guys know the drill, like somebody who's senior and experienced, warrant officer, senior chief, master chief, like wide open in the squadron space, 75 operators who have been there 20 years, guys with 300 or more combat operations that have been overseas 10 to 12 times. And one dude was like, you know what? I'm tired. I'm super tired. Like all these, and everybody was like, damn, I'm tired too, man. Like, can we, that's all it took. And so institutionally, how do we commit to different models? Just get a little tiny group where everybody's safe and nobody's gonna get made fun of and do the drill I mentioned. Like what will recovery, or what's the right tempo for our unit? Like what should the tempo look like over a month or a year? That's a great start. And then you give it to the most senior guy who's brave enough and doesn't care what the young people think, and then he delivers it, right? You guys know how this stuff works. Yeah. The one, sorry, just to add on, if there's nothing else you hear from me today, hear this. Uh, people don't uh, listen, they watch. People don't listen, they watch. Your subordinates do not listen to your Braveheart speeches. They watch your behavior. Whatever coping mechanisms you have, you're passing on. So if you don't want to change, if you don't want to change your diet, and your exercise, or whatever because you're selfish, that's, I get that. I get that. Look at me. <laughs> However, know that everybody who's coming up 
uh, after you is going to inherit all of those habits. So that's a choice you have to live with. Silos were mentioned earlier, and I'm looking for an answer to this next question from each of your perspectives as a researcher, as an operator. As someone who has likely navigated the preparation and execution phases, but also the mental, emotional consequences post-deployment, do you think silos are helpful or detrimental, and what can be done better collectively? Yeah, I mean, I think silos are always detrimental, just as a general rule. That's just, you know, Coleman's opinion about teams in general because we have a limited amount of time every day, 24 hours, a limited amount of energy and bandwidth, and if I don't learn from the people around me, like what good am I, you know, I'm an N of one. And so, um, on the mental health topic, which of course is a much bigger topic these days, which I think is really good, it's certainly a huge topic in our community and other special operations communities. Let me just lead with a couple of books, so I don't, I, I could soapbox all day long, but I'm not a researcher in the space, I only have my experience and some other colleagues. A book that is worth reading if, if that's your mode of learning. I know not everybody will read you know, tons of books in a year. Um, there's a book called The Body Keeps the Score. Has anybody seen that? By Bessel van der Kolk. And it was the first time for myself, and I was very much an autodidact in this space starting in about 2007. I was pouring through human factors books and have been for the last 12 years, very much from the biological side because I just wanted to see, like okay, all the research and all the experiences out there in the world on combat action, co combat action and mission critical teams, what does the mechanics actually say about this, you know? And so, and then eventually I got to Besser van der Kolk's book, The Body Keeps the Score, and he lays out, I mean, this guy's been at this for 30 years in the recovery and therapy space, but from a mechanical perspective, what does the central nervous system actually do in crisis, combat, you know, you name it? And that's what the book's about. And when I finished it, I thought, this is another example of something I could have used 15 years ago. Just so you have the knowledge, and in, in, in some groups, the question I get oftentimes is like, well, Coleman, what if you don't have the time for the recovery and you can't clear the residue and, and you gotta do the job anyway? I say, yes, exactly, I totally agree with all that. But knowing what's going on with your system gives you a chance to make these little like micro adjustments along the way that's better than go harder for longer with more intensity. Like, pretty much anything's better than that plan. Uh, except for only when you need it, right? And so, um, in terms of the mental health, the silos, like find a place that you feel like you can get some information, and I would start with The Body Keeps the Score, because it's just, it's a fascinating read. Kind of reads like a textbook, but just grin and bear it. Most people in here will find it useful. So from an academic point of view, I'm just going to introduce some language. Um, the way we think about a training and education is that we train for certainty, we educate for uncertainty. We can train you how to use a gun, the mechanics, but we have to educate you to determine when, where, and why to use the gun. If we're training people to make Snickers bars, then silos are fine because actually I don't need some good idea fairy coming in and saying we should make all Snicker bars round. I mean, like, go away. We're, the Snicker bar's fine. Stop screwing with the Snicker bar. However, if you need to invent a new type of candy, then I can't rely on that same team because all they know is the sticker bar. So they have to have a diverse set of opinions in order for them to be at all competitive. And it's sort of that simple. Like, silos are useful if you plan on just doing the same thing the same way over and over again with high predictability. Just know that when you look for high predictability, you trade agility. You can't have both. And when you go for high agility, you're trading predictability. 
And so that's, that's the, just the, the deal that you're making. The way to offset or mitigate that is by having the most diverse set of tools in the toolbox. What we say is moving from contingency planning to capacity building. So against complex problems, we want the highest capacity of people in the, in the toolbox so that whatever the answer is, we got Fred or Susan who can figure it out. Are we okay on time, Patty? So Absolutely, yeah. That. The, the reason why at MCTI we've learned, you know, working with all the different teams and through Preston's research, one of the big reasons why language and mechanisms for specificity and this idea of there's a difference between, you know, making candy bars, obviously, than working in a complex environment. There's another guy named David Snowden. He's a Welsh researcher. It's, I see some heads nodding. So everybody who understands the difference between simple and complicated environment as opposed to a complex environment, as it relates to the language, this is really bad in business, by the way. Businesses love to talk about good practices and best practices, right? Like, what are our best practices? And then they mark those on the wall, and they etch them in a piece of metal, and that's our best practice. The next question you ask them is, do you operate in a simple, complicated, or complex environment? Oh, we operate in a complex environment. Okay, so by definition, your best practices are garbage. The ones that you etched on the wall, what you need is emergent practices. And that is a very dynamic environment to work in. But what do businesses do? Oh, yeah, we do onboarding and training. No, what you should be doing is education. Why? Because we educate for uncertainty. You've already defined that you work in a complex environment. You have opposing mechanisms in your best practices that don't work in a complex environment. So we try to like start, like we say, what's flat? What's at the floor? And at the floor is our environment is complex. So anything that we feel is best practices or siloed, yes, there's places for that. There's certainly, like, there's training things that we do that we did 30 years ago that still matter today and they'll always matter. But we can't overlump that into one area because it affects the areas where it, it kind of bleeds into the complex environment. And then we're like, oh, well, what's best practices? They don't work here anymore. And we kind of end up a little bit mixed up about that. And so... Back to your question about silos. Anytime silos are in place, it has to be an extremely specific thing that doesn't really change or it's not overly affected by the environment. Right? And just as a, as a specific, uh, mechanism for specificity there, if some of your organizations, not saying this is happening, if some of your organizations still talk to the new guy and tell the new guy to shut up for the first year what, until he learns it, you are losing a lot of resources. You are sabotaging yourself. The world is changing too fast to not try to gain. You can tell them to shut up if they're wrong, but to tell them to shut up all the time is putting a bunch of resources on the shelf which you actually need. It's a bad, bad cultural trait that's meant for the 1800s, not the 2000s. That's interesting. You mentioned residue. Can you share information with us about any other upcoming projects that you're working on or teams that you're working with? I could talk about Cleveland Clinic. Yeah, sure. Yeah. So one of the things um, that's like brand new that we're just figuring out, how much time do I have? All the time you need. Okay. So I'm going to, I'll make this brief though. So I spent nine that's hours. That's dangerous, at, by the way. Yeah, that's, that's dangerous, really, really dangerous. dangerous. When I was five, uh, yeah. no. Um, yeah, I love this pony. Um, so um, I was invited to spend nine hours at the Cleveland Clinic. The Cleveland Clinic is the leading heart surgical uh, hospital in the, in the country or the world. And I was there for nine hours to observe open heart surgery teams. And the reason that these teams are unusual is because they're hybrid teams. Some teams are technical teams who deal with routine operations. For example, if you get your knee replaced, it's a lot like Snickers bars. They're going to come in, they're going to do the same thing every time. And they're going to do 10 of those a day. It's very routine. 
a trauma room is very critical, meaning that they don't know what's gonna show up and whatever shows up, they gotta fix, right? A heart surgery team is both because they start off routine, then they turn off your heart. And they've got about 45 minutes to solve whatever shows up before blood starts clotting in the brain. So if they open up the chest and, and there's aliens in there, they gotta sort the aliens and the original problem in 45 minutes. So you have this team that's dropping from routine to critical, back to routine, down to critical. With me so far? So the reason I'm there is they're having high attrition for their charge nurses, which are against the wall. The scrub nurse is above the patient, sort of looking after the bubble that is the surgery. They're having a high attrition with these charge nurses. And they've asked me to come in because their assumption, which I agree with, is that doctors are jerks. I've met doctors, they are jerks. So I'm like, I'm down with that. That seems like a reasonable problem. And so their solution is we need to get doctors more empathy training. Right? And I'm like, seems reasonable. So I'm there, and the second surgery, we're now, I'm like six hours or five hours in, and, some, and we're in between patients. They've just wheeled in the second patient. The anesthesiologist is putting them under, and some surgeons come in to ask me about my research. And because I'm 50 and there's ambient noise and I'm loud, I'm talking too loud. And so the anesthesiologist comes around and he goes, hey, Preston, can you dial it down just a bit, right? Your volume, just you dial while well, we're putting down the, the patient who's going to heart surgery. If you could just shut up, just, just dial it down a little bit. He does it in the nicest possible way. Like it's the kindest shut the fuck up I've ever gotten in my life, <laughs> right? <laughs> Except that if you're me and you do this for a living, as you can imagine, I'm feeling shame, embarrassment. I'm like the inner monologue is you're such an idiot. The inner dude is like, screw him. No, and then my, my inner grandmother's like, you shut up, you were the one who made a mistake. All this is happening in my brain, right? So it's just a cascade of emotions. But here's what's interesting. That ha didn't happen because of that guy. That guy gave me feedback in the nicest possible way. The reaction had all to do with the reception, even though I have a thick skin. So the question is, how do you develop a thick skin? Especially for folks who don't live the life, the enablers. So I start watching the charge nurse, and what I'm realizing is she actually, in this case a she, could be a he, doesn't know the difference between a routine conversation and a critical conversation. So if we did an exercise, I've done this with a bunch of folks around the world, if I had you right now as tables, tell me what the five most important things about routine communication, you'd all come up with the same things. Empathy, respect, listening, exchange of ideas. You actually know what works. If I then said, Coleman's hit the ground and he's having a seizure, we have to get stuff done in 300 seconds, write down the five critical communication things that we need. You'd also write down the same things. Brevity, precision, clarity, all these things. Except that if you've never lived that life, you, and you only know routine environments, you're judging all communication from a routine lens. And a person who's speaking to you from a critical place comes across as a jerk. Because you don't know that they're not talking to you, they're talking to the mission. So our research right now, we're working with different groups to do this, is to take incoming folks who've never lived a life and just give them that very basic framework. This is what you should expect in a routine environment. There are jerks in the world, but this is reasonable. However, if this thing happens where somebody hits the ground, blows up, whatever, you should expect this. It's not about you. It's about the mission. And what we're finding is, is that a lot of people are like, oh, <laughs> that's really helpful, thanks. I actually didn't know that. It's that simple, whereas we, we were growing up being robust, it was like, oh dude, it's not about you, just get a thick skin, you know, like don't take it personally. That's not helpful. But giving people a framework to understand the differences in those realities is suddenly like, oh, 
It doesn't make it any easier, but it accelerates their ability to adapt to that environment faster. So that's the kind of stuff that we, I enjoy doing. Okay. My last question, and then we'll wrap it up and open it up to the floor. When you both think about human performance optimization and resilience, what are you most excited about? Um, yeah, for me, Pat, I'm most excited about uh, what's going on in human factors in general. Like we, we all, again, only have 24 hours in every day. We have to do our jobs. We have kids, wives, like social things. We try to take time off. We try to just live life in general. And it took a monumental effort before, so some of you may have read the book Spark by Dr. John Rady. You know, back in 1995, when he was doing a longitudinal study at the Aging Center at UC Irvine, there were like 13 papers on exercise in the brain in 95. And now, I mean, there's who knows on that, you know? That's just an indicator of where human factors research is. So the, what we know about the system and how we can optimize it is just so much more accessible than it was 20 years ago, 25 years ago. That's really exciting. The, the challenge to us all is to make it a meaningful part of our life and not just assume that being a good soldier, a good athlete, a good firefighter, a good whatever, tactically is enough. Because when you're 23, you can get away with so many things physically that you can't get away with at 45. And we should not take that for granted. Like, that's an advantage. We know more about the physics that we're trapped in. Thus, we should use those levers effectively, you know, over time. So what is the arc of our performance? What should it look like at 20 to 30? What should it look like at 30, 40, 50, 60, whatever? Pick that arc, educate the team and yourself, and take it on as an organizational responsibility to pay attention to human factors to the same degree we pay attention to everything else. That's really exciting to me because the knowledge alone is just remarkable. For me, it's stuff like this. Uh, the work that Jason and others are doing is exciting to me, and it's exciting to me because if you think about it, where we are historically in the historical timeline, it's 2019, right? So 9-11 uh, happened 18 years ago or 19 years ago. And what that means is, is that you're all of a generation that unfortunately has had to bury some friends. And what that's led to is a bunch of questioning the status quo. It's a bunch of people around the world going, hey, look, I've actually lived the dark side of this, and I'm tired of people telling me that's just the way we do business. We can do better. And then what I'm excited about worldwide is that operators are now stepping up to go, hold on, I don't think that's true. And at the same time, we're seeing a lot of academics starting to move towards the applied. That's great that we, we can figure out what, you know, sharks and lasers in 30 years, but what do we do on Monday? And so I think there's this really interesting time to be alive in this space because there's the convergence of very curious people who are very motivated to make things better. Thank you both for a very enlightening conversation. Thank you. Sure. <laughs> so let's take 10. We'll take 10 and then we'll open it up to the floor. So does anybody want to volunteer to come up? Anybody have a question for our guests? And if you do, please come up to the microphone to ask it. Good morning, thank you for coming. Thank you. Uh, I got a question for Coleman. As the teams were venturing into the understanding of human factors, yep. was there difficulty taking that scientific understanding and bring it out to the sled dogs. Yeah, and, it's, and there still is. I was down in Virginia Beach just a couple weeks ago doing exactly this, you know, sitting down with the instructor cadre and selection training guys. And the, our human performance building, not that the physical building matters, but it matters enough that you can collect people and stuff in this one place. Um, 
When I was uh, OIC of training in 2008, we started the project, and the building is just getting finished now. And so now, there's a, there's a lot that goes into it, right? All the military, MILCON spending, that's a whole other thing. But, but even, even without you know, the actual Human Performance Center, um, the story I always tell, and Mike Warden's retired now, he's a, he's a civilian down at the beach. The first real like human factors, human performance trip that we took down to Florida, we went down to Pensacola. If anyone remembers those books like um, Core Performance for Golf, Core Performance for Baseball, Core Performance, that's Mark Verstegen. He started that business you know, way back in the day. His first real client was Nomar Garciaparra when he was at, I think, Georgia Tech or something. But that company evolved over time. Anyway, they had a performance center in Florida. We went down there, this guy named Mike Warden, he had an elbow, senior enlisted, senior chief at the time, his elbow was bothering him for the last 15 years, literally, going overseas. And before you can train at HPI, at the performance center, they put you through this thing called the functional movement screener. Some people like it, some people don't, but that's beside the point. If you didn't score high enough in the functional movement screener, you could, they wouldn't train you at all. They wouldn't even let you work out. And Mike failed it. And they went over, he went over to the PT table, and they adjusted his scapula, and his elbow pain went away. Okay, so this is one like stupid, simple example. But taking the mentality of go harder for longer with more intensity doesn't work. Taking that mentality back to the command when we were first going to start taking seriously human factors as, as physics tells us what they are was a monumental effort. And it still is for lots of different reasons. You know, the younger guys think, and, and rightfully so, what got them here, wherever here is, is what I'm going to keep doing because that's how I got here. Um, the older folks, like we have our own, just call it, you know, human performance that got us here, and we're not really too excited to change stuff. And then you have the trainers who aren't operators. They're not the senior people in the command. They don't want to tell people what to do. And so what's the answer? Again, I have no idea. It's like these little 1% incremental efforts. And typically, if you can pressure test a couple of small ideas in small groups and get the right senior people on board and not try to do it all at once, you know? And I would also try to avoid like the next sexy book that's out on the general market, whether it's, you know, sleep or this, or, I'm not, all that stuff's important, but what I've seen organizations do, we've done it, is the next thing and then the next thing and then the next thing and then the next thing, and we never sorted out the first thing. Everybody was just getting exciting about something different every two years. And it's why I'm a huge advocate of pick a thing literally do a whiteboard session with the guys who at least know the most, say, we think these three to five things, recovery, human factors, AAR, whatever it is, you wanna push the organization to do what the thing that you think you're gonna get the most leverage out of, a step function improvement. Do that and pressure test a project. You know, so last thing I'll say on this is just, just having this conversation with a guy named Jeff, I'll leave his last name out, and guys I worked with for 15 years at the HP Center just a couple of weeks ago, and the question we were working with, one of the questions we were working with was like, let's pressure test one of these things. It was like, if you took a, pardon me for not knowing exactly how many are in a, like a firefighting squad or unit, if you took a sealed troop of 50 guys who were already at, in theory, the top of their game, and you put them in the room, you said, okay guys, on the whiteboard, as a, as a thought experiment, if this troop was gonna be a step function better, like we don't even know what that is yet, what would that be? Like, what would that Formula One race car look like? What kind of things would they do? What would be the path to get them there? And 
we don't do that enough. We just think like, oh, we're getting a little bit better. Oh, we'll do this thing because it makes us better. Really, like, tell me what the race car actually does when it's better. That's a really, really hard problem to crack with like, you know, 20 years of experience because we drag, oh, well, I used to do it this way. You, you know the, you know how these conversations go. It's really, really challenging. But we have to pick something small, I think. Okay, and I'm gonna ask on a different topic, cortisol. Um, we kind of have an understanding of the impacts in the immediate short term. Well, what are the long term, from a longitudinal standpoint, the impacts upon us in, during our careers? Coleman actually probably knows this better than I do. The body keeps the score. Yeah, I've read that. Yeah, yeah. All, all those, I don't know what the actual like medical answer is. I just know there's a remarkable amount of research out there from John Rady, for one. I know he talks about a lot in Spark and in other research. And I'm a nerd in the way that like when I find something like the body keeps the score, I just go to the bibliography and see like what's next on this topic. And I wish I could give a medical answer, but the long-term trailing effects are just tremendous. You know, how they affect insulin, how they affect uh, leptin, and our, our, from our sleep to our performance is just, it rides that train. The only, the only other thing I would say to that though is that, you know, as we talk to neuroscientists and other folks, every time we think we learn something, we <laughs> learn something that contradicts the last thing we learned. And so I'm always just, if I don't have somebody in the room who's no kidding yeah. studying this, I'm always just hesitant to be that it's a good thing or it's a bad thing. I think it's, here's what I do know, I know the body heals itself every seven years. And so you can do really bad things to yourself, but if you then turn your body around, we know, for example, from traumatic brain injury that we can rewire the brain. We know that people that have come back with serious TBI can actually um, rewire their brain to increase functionality and not be brain damaged. We know that's happening and that's real. We don't know how, we don't know why, but we know it's possible. So I tend to be an optimist to say, yeah, you can, you can do bad things for a while, but it's not permanent. I don't, like very few things other than amputations are permanent. And so I'm just an optimist about this stuff. Thank you so much. Yeah. Good seeing you. Next question. We're off the hook, almost. <laughs> Two part, gentlemen. Hey. Uh, first is a clarification. So going back to the beginning of your presentation, we were talking about RPDM. And then we were comparing that to the mission critical teams operating small groups, 300 seconds. I'm trying to understand. You said there's two parts of the brain there, and, and they're, they well, are separate of each. Yeah. So and there's that, a conflict yep. that's so, going on. Um, it's a great question. Yeah, it's a great question. It is a great question. And the answer is there's a lot of smart people that are looking at this question right now. And so there's not a clear answer. But here's the best way to sort of think about it. So Daniel Kahneman, when he wrote Thinking Fast and Thinking Slow, he talks about System 1 and System 2. System 1 being that sort of fast reactionary response. That's where we are in that under 300 seconds. System 2 being the more thoughtful, slow response. The problem is, is that the brain's never not doing anything. And so the easier, better way to think about this, and this is where this gets back to recognition prime decision making, think about a, a hammock that's stretched between that wall and this wall. And that's the neural network of your brain. Then imagine a bowling ball. The bowling ball is your consciousness. So sometimes when, you're, when the bowling ball's over here where you're really thoughtful and you're like, what does that poetry really mean? That's when you're down here. But that, that, they're still pulling on that side. Same when the bowling ball rolls that way. It's still pulling on this side. It's never either or. It's just a question of percentages how much. Here's where it gets even more complicated though. For you all, it's not being there or being here. It's how fast the bowling ball can move back and forth. So when you think about recognition prime decision making, what's happening, not, and I won't go too far into this, but your brain it has a series of cues that are recorded 
on threat assessments. And those cues are in an algorithm. And so what happens is, is that independent of where your bowling ball is, this part of the brain is always evaluating those cues. With what, what Klein was studying with fire chiefs was, that firing of that limbic system, like, wow, I'm seeing a pattern, that will trigger the bowling ball to come spooling over here to make a decision. But both are engaged, because you're sort of ping-ponging back and forth. It's, it's a very crude way to describe something really complicated that we don't really understand. What's your first name? Uh, Jerry. Jerry. Jerry? Jerry. I just like to use people's names. Jerry. The, uh, um, three months ago? November. Anyways, an economist over at GW University here in the Beltway near D.C. His name's Tyler Cohen. And um, he has visitors. He does his thing, conversations with Tyler in person. And then he puts them on a podcast. But he had Kahneman back in November. So I just bought a ticket and drove over there. I didn't know Gary Klein was going to be in the audience. But... The way Tyler sets up the conversation is like 40, 40 minutes of conversation is just like this. There's two mics, and he keeps it like pretty economical. He's like, this is how the quick Q&A works, and be standing at the mic, and if you turn it into it, you know, he gives you all these rules. So I'm not but, that bad. Yeah, no, you're not that bad, right? <laughs> so anyway, Kahneman's answering a question. He goes, well, and it was a, it was a recognition prime decision-making question from somebody else. And he goes, I'm, I'm delighted that Gary Klein's in the room. And now I'm like, holy smokes, <laughs> they're both in one room. But he would... Kahneman kind of answered this question by pivoting a little bit as well, because Gary was there and they had recently done some work on noise, you know, white noise, and um, which you guys have probably heard of or read. And he very much mentioned what Preston mentioned, it was this idea of, you know, they both, meaning Klein and Kahneman, Klein wasn't talking, but Kahneman was referencing him the whole time, saying what we're really talking about is like reliable, unreliable intuition. And he referenced, you know, there's, there's points where it's reliable and there's points where it's unreliable. So back to a lot of the things that we care about, like what do we do on Monday? You know, how does that help me? If you're a senior decision maker, I think one of the ways it helps us to like engage with our, call it maybe humility and practicality and how can we be most useful as a senior decision maker is because intuition is domain specific, you are, and you've had so many at-bats, you are radically efficient, say at a fire, making a recognition prime decision making but we fool ourselves if we think when the, the temporal environment slows down and we're back in the office that we still know everything. Like, we don't. You definitely knew everything in the system one model because you just know more. You're a, you're a more intuitive expert in that sense. And this is when Kahneman was going back to the noise. He referenced the noise and he said, look, in your regular daily operating system two world, there's so much noise that you really don't know what you don't know. And the, the better you can engage a collaborative inquiry type model, the better off we're going to be. And I think as senior leaders, we can all identify points in our life where we just felt like we knew the right thing during that system two time. But that's a very dangerous game to play. The other thing I would just add to that too is that one of the things that you could be doing for yourself and for your subordinates is whenever possible, try to articulate your intuition. So if you suddenly think, this is wrong, we gotta do something. Try to take a hot second if you can or afterwards and go, what was the thing? Was it smell? Was it, was it a, a moving object? What was it? And if you can say that out loud, you can start to articulate your intuition and your expertise and that will help your subordinates get better faster. Kind of trust in my gut. Yeah. Yeah, it's funny. It's very simplistic in, in one aspect. You have it, it's just you gotta realize it. Yep. Uh, so here's my second point. In our book, we have these questions and we really haven't hit on this. In the fire service, we are crippled by technology. Yeah. What I mean by that, and I'm sure it's in, in, on the team side as well, 
they're looking at as a tenant of how to make us do our jobs even more efficient, better, faster, and the opposite is true. So great point is LA City, massive fire department, have tons of money, they just did a huge project, every single fireman getting off the rig now has a thermal imaging camera. So it's, it's very small in size, but now that's an additional piece this operator's gotta use into what capacity and whatever procedures they want it. But we're always being told this in the guise of safety. So the out of the way, more shit we gotta worry about and fumble with versus being light, you know, maneuverable in that regard. So I think that's where in this question, we're using technology to counter resilience. So how do you see that balance in that, in that regard of applying those? Yeah, I know <clears throat> Preston's got some great perspective here and stories, but I'll just, I'll tell you for us where it really comes to light, and I don't know if you ever have a situation in the fire service where you do, um, you know, you may do 65 fires in four months, I don't know. Um, but for us, a high tempo, you know, tempo at one point overseas was like two operations a month. And you have all this time to sort out your tech and make sure it works right. When we started doing real ops, we threw away 90% of it because we couldn't answer to Preston's question and my point about like, I always like to think about mechanisms for specificity, using the example you gave. What is the thermal imaging camera telling me? Okay, I get the safety part. I agree with you, yes, I'm gonna give you 100% thumbs up on that from the HQ, everybody wants to be safer. It tells me that thing's hot. Appreciate it, thanks. Like, like I mean, they wanted, there were this huge new night vision that came out, like half of it's NVGs, half of it's thermal, all this stuff. It tells you that, that that person over there was like, we saw him before. Like, <laughs> he's shooting a weapon. Like, all you did was give us more weight to wear. And so my caution is that we have to try to decide like what, and I know you don't always control this, what is it actually telling us? And when operations get really high, we've learned every time that the technology, it was too much. I mean, no one can use it, right? Just cognitive limits to what we can yep. absorb. You guys know this. And so I guess my encouragement is we dealt with the exact same thing. Again, sorry, I don't have like a great answer. Other than I'm optimistic, even in the human factors world, I'm optimistic about where technology's going, but I'm pessimistic on like, it's some of that stuff is so new that it's in 10 years or 20 years, it's gonna be any use to us, right? Because like the, the bicycle, we were talking about riding bikes. I love the bicycle example is everybody wants to buy a $5,000 bike, but nobody wants to lose 10 pounds. Like the technology did nothing for you. There's things we're trapped by physics that we can fix today to be more, to be more higher performing, but we want to buy another camera. Well, I don't know, let's lose 10 pounds and be able to run through the fire faster. I don't know, you know? Whatever it is, let's think about the human factors first and what's it doing to that system. I think we also have to just acknowledge a, a, a current human paradox for every human, which is change is hard, change is coming faster. That's true, both of those yep. are true. Change is hard, change is coming faster. I'll give you an example. How many emails is too many emails in a day? Do we have a number? One. Yeah. <laughs> Two. Two. Yeah. But there is a number, right? So let's just acknowledge there is a number. So who out there is gonna raise their hand and say, wow, Preston's getting too many emails. We might wanna dial that down. That's not the way it works and that's not what's gonna happen. So logically that means that the only one that could do anything about that is you. Is you can decide how much data, right? And how am I gonna respond to increasing levels of data? It's true with technology as well. 
in a network system, the ones that you guys are entering into in your life cycle, in your career, the days where you can simply sit back and go, they want us to do this is no longer sufficient because most times they don't know. It's gonna require the teams actually raise their hand, accept that change is coming, and accept that some change is counterproductive, and give voice to that. And I know there's a zillion reasons why that's hard. Check, I'll go back to the paradox. Change is hard, change is coming. What role do you wanna play in that process? Jerry, anecdotally, I would love if I was king for a day, like in the teams, and I never stayed in long enough to do that, but on this technology question, if, you, if, you're, if somebody in here is at a point where you can affect the decisions, it would be, Fine, add a new technology, but you have to take one away. Yeah. Like we're basically at saturation. I think everybody anecdotally can probably feel that in one way or the other. Add a new one, because we want innovation and we want increased capabilities, but you have to take one away. Thank you. Can I ask a little bit? Yeah, please. <laughs> Sorry, I got a lot of questions. The issue of the amount of weight that um, the teams wear, like in the fire service, like I got on the job when we wore blue jeans. And now we're saddled with an insane amount of, has the teams looked at that and not just the understanding of oh, the yeah. impact on, on the body, but also the impact on cognitive function when you're really exerting yourself? Yeah, there's no, we haven't done a good like study on the cognitive function when you're exerting yourself for the very reason I brought up earlier. Whether you do the study or not, like you still have to exert yourself. But what we have done is a lot of accelerometers, a lot of jumping, a lot of running to see what kind of pounding is on the system. We have done a fairly good job of keeping our gear load pretty low. Like we don't typically add more and more gear for no reason. And I've had like a secret little mini desire to get fully ensembled. I'm sure somebody here would be more than happy to run me through something. When I see firefighters with all their gear, it scares the shit out of me. We never wear all that. And I, I, you may have to, but I'll, I'm always looking at a photo of you guys in full gear and like that is crazy heavy or it seems crazy heavy to me, you know? So how would, if you were in our shoes, how would we make the case to senior leaders that we need to, because all of it is in the, in the, the guise of safety. Oh, sure, they sure. A lot of senior leaders, again, don't understand the negative impact. How would we make that case to senior leaders that we need to, to revisit this? Let's think, I mean, I would think about a resource unconstrained. So if senior leaders, if the commissioner of FDNY said, come on, I'll give you 10 million bucks to go innovate on materials, that's what I would do first. I would say, what's the safest fire materials in the world that I can put on my body now that are 10x lighter than what we have? So it, it, it seems to me that there, there needs to be like radical innovation um, to just take a look at it, right? That's the case I would make, but I wouldn't try to make any case with our current materials, and we face this all the time, like just trying to get new, you know, physical body materials approved from pants to body armor to whatever. We we take a radical look at the materials first because what else can you do? Like there's not, from a physics standpoint, fire is still super hot. So, you know, you have to find the material that can withstand it. That, I mean, in a, thankfully in SOCOM we have enough money to do this and I know there's probably not enough money to have like a little mini innovation cell, but that's the way we did it. We, we took the materials innovation route. So just can I take a shot at this? Sure. I think when, we, when you look at a bureaucracy like the Wharton School or big corporations, the rule that we would say is it's not enough to own your problem, you have to own your problem and their problem. So you actually have to recognize that, that the logic for moving from genes to Nomex was actually good, right? The injuries of lower, lower torso injuries went down, right? Because at the end of the day, the accountants are gonna win. Take out morality, take out people, the accountants are gonna win. 
But if you make the argument, if you actually, and many, and I've tried doing this and there's a lot of resistance, if you actually go to your injury data, it's pretty easy to make a financial argument as to why this is worthwhile. You're making a moral, or not you, but oftentimes I hear this is, it's too much, it's too complicated, it's too tactical. That's awesome, no one cares. If you go, it's too expensive, a lot of people will start caring and they're the ones who actually make decisions. So if you actually look at the data of compression injuries, back injuries, hip injuries, knee injuries, you actually show the, like, the, the uh, out of work costs and you say, it, just a, a percentage of that to investigate is worth your while, then the people who actually make decisions will be like, yes it is, go ahead. It's sometimes that simple. Thank you. And from a relationship standpoint, for anybody in here, please use MCTI. If anybody wants an introduction to another innovation cell in some other like realm of mission critical teams, just email us, and we'll introduce you to people who are trying to crack these same problems. You know. Yeah. All right then. With that. One more. Is there oh, one more? we have one more. Yeah. Along the same vein, Jim. Uh, do the SEALs you use uh, biometrics to determine whether or not they want to go on a mission? Um, and if not, do you think they should? No and no. Okay. Yeah. We don't, we don't biometric like <laughs> that decision. And yeah. I don't know exactly what you mean in terms of is the team ready? Like are we variants? Oh, no, 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 no. No, the mission's entirely determined by does it fit the mission set we're going to do. And as soon as you hit like a mission criteria trigger, you go whether a guy is ready or not, which is back to our, this conversation, right? We need to do everything we can to make sure guys are recovered and prepared to go because we're going. Right? Your heart rate value variability could be garbage and you're going. <laughs> one more? Yeah, I'll be quick. Thanks. I learned a lot. I put a lot of notes. So I agree everything you said. You talked about change is coming. Yep. We don't like change and, and, and it's going to come at a faster tempo. Yeah. And that's the phrase tempo, which to me, you know, if you could just spend a few minutes talking about tempo, because as first responders, just as you said, you don't get to say we're not going today because we are going today. Yeah. And then as leaders, as first responders, how do we go and craft that? Because we're crushing it right now, and we're going to continue to crush it and for the foreseeable future, because that's, that's the fate of the world. So if you could just address tempo. Yeah, I'm going to answer that in a bunch of very controversial way that will probably offend everybody in this room. So, um, <laughs> so, just, all time, so get ready for that. That's a good ending. <laughs> so if, you, um, if any of you are familiar with trauma surgery or um, hospitals, they don't use intact teams. They use X teams, and they use networks. What that means is, is that if, we're going to, if a car accident comes in, I'm not taking my team. I'm getting a beeper, and I'm, I have a role. I'm swarming to that patient, and I'm going to solve that problem. In many cases, we're cross-trained. There's a number of people around the country that are looking at the fact that police, fire, and ambulance are all being deployed at the same time and are asking why. In a world of emergent problem sets that are complex, adaptive, and networked, why does that model still exist? Wouldn't we be better off in a networked model where we're cross-training people to solve problems that are emergent problems? And the answer is, no. and the, and the really good answer is, no five-year-old looks up and says, I want to be part of a complex, adaptive group. No, a five-year-old says, I want to be a cop or a firefighter, right? So there's really cultural, legendary things. And the, and the way that I would sort of answer that is that all of you have a legacy, and the great thing about having a legacy is that it's your tradition. The problem is a legacy is meant to be a launch pad, not an anchor. If your legacy is telling you we can't do that because that's not who we are, you're dying. Against the problem sets of the world today, if your legacy is acting as an anchor to progress, it's killing you. 
And so the world is changing. And here's a great example, California fires. The system of mutual aid is breaking down in real time. It's failing. The system's failing. We're not that many years out before there's a collapse of that system. And when it hits LA, like it almost has a couple of times, or some big city, they'll come to you. My only suggestion is you don't wait until then. You get in front of it. And that's going to require some fundamental reassumptions about how municipalities, regions, um, deal with not only fire, but big disasters. And so that's my long-winded way of trying to get at what you're talking about. Has anybody okay. read Team of Teams, General McCrudden? Okay, so um, as, a, as a matter of just additional validation, this was real for us in JSOC. We were getting outpaced and outrun by tempo, by enemy tempo, in almost every category. And can you imagine a world in which like the US Special Operations across the entire like, force deployed the way we were? We, it was, we were so far behind their tempo and the only way we solved that problem was joint networked operations. I, I think it's a, I think that's the future. I think we, we all have to recognize that's the future. Yeah, yeah. And because the other aspect is we're, we're dying under it yeah. across the board if we don't change the construct of yeah, what we're doing. Yeah. Here's just two other things if it gives any heart uh, to this. We also work with NASA and we also work with the FBI. You should know that Holly Ridings, who became the first female fl chief flight director this summer, when we went in to help those guys with flight director selection, here's the problem she gave us. The person who invented this, right, like uh, Gene Krantz, who wrote Failure Not As Option, in his six years had 14 human space flights, 14 in six years. Holly is hiring people who in their life cycle will be doing 14 a month. None of the systems that were created, the history, will solve that problem. So NASA, a very sort of stoic organization, is having to change faster than they're comfortable with. The FBI hostage rescue team was created in the 80s in the, in the aftermath of the Munich massacre. The Munich massacre lasted 21 hours. That's why they're based in Quantico, Virginia. The, one of the planes to hit the towers, it was 21 minutes from the time of the hijacking to the tower hitting. They're taking a problem set that was built for 21 hours and using the same system to solve problems that are 21 minutes. It's not gonna work. They have to rethink the whole thing. So I'm just saying that, that you, while this is often overwhelming and frustrating, you're not alone. A lot of the fundamental systems in the country are having to be rethought in this generation. Okay, I you. know we're yeah. killing your timeline, but. Sorry. Jerry, can you give me an example of another fire like service in America City or whatever that you guys respect, that meaning FDNY respects? Um, this is a good question. But you really wouldn't want to work with them every day. Uh, I can just give you from mine. Yeah. So I work just off the road of Baltimore City. Okay, great. We have a one section of town we call the Brooklyn Fire Dodgers. Okay. And it's literally what they are. Okay. And they are the Brooklyn Fire Dodgers. Okay. These guys come to work and they want nothing to do with the rig. Okay. Or go to a fire. Okay. And they don't even check their equipment. Like it's beyond embarrassing. Yeah. So that's like not a group of guys. So you don't respect them. Right. Exactly. Who do you respect? Like who's another fire service that you so, would respect? So like by the time, as you go to the second or third battalion, top notch guys are into the job. That's who you want yeah. to work Yeah. Yeah. Okay. So for us, obviously in JSOC, when we're all working for General McChrystal, like the guys at the unit down at Bragg, I respect the heck out of them. Zero of us in the Navy would voluntarily want to work together until General McChrystal made us do it. And it was the most successful, empowering environment I've ever worked in to date in my life. Getting there was like having my teeth pulled every day. So this idea of networked operations is in no way easy, but imagine a world where 
just because I know Jason the best here, FDNY and Chicago Fire meet to work together on a regular basis. That probably sounds like complete insanity. It sounded like insanity to us too. The speed of our operations was something you could have never predicted. We went from 30 operations a month with a bunch of different troops in country, 30 operations a month. So we're only getting one op a night done until we, I mean, just forced like this system to work over a long period of time and we did 300 operations a month consistently. Like over and over and over again. One night to 10 night. It's crazy. I mean, it's, if as a platoon commander, a troop commander, someone said, yeah, in three years you're gonna be doing 300 operations, I'd be like, you're nuts. There's no way we can do that. And we all did it consistently, like with no problem. Can I just add, I just have a follow up on Jim's question. Yeah. Operationally, having everybody come together, I certainly understand it. But are you looking at a street level also? Oh yeah. All right, because the reason I ask is that in the, and I know that I agree with you, Hunter, we're, we're, we're behind the eight ball. I worked in an agency that was public service. Yep. Cops and firemen were the same thing. Yep. It was. Yep. It, oh yeah. It, it, it didn't function well. Yeah. Now I, I can certainly see a joint command and a joint operational because that's how, that's how we're going to do it. Our system, our world is going to involve in that where we're going to be side by side. Mm -hmm. So I was just trying to get an idea of a better clarification from you guys because I saw that yeah. didn't work before. Maybe it's because we were all five, we wanted to be yeah. cops or firemen. I don't know. Yeah. But it just didn't it just it didn't gel that well as opposed to different agencies, different skill sets working side by side because we trust and believe in each other. You know, I think there was an old thing that I read somewhere that, you know, you guys don't take airfields. You right. guys don't hold turf. That's right. That's what bubbles do. Right. You know, those kind of things are uh, you know, that, I'm trying to get a better understanding of that because I really like this idea and I'd like to take it home and I'd like to expand on it, but I want to have an understanding from you guys what it is. It was all the way down to the tactical level and we had all the same pains and it took years and years and here I'm overgeneralizing, but it's back to my point earlier about is the environment changing and wailing and gnashing of teeth at the street level, the troop commander level, the senior level, and General McChrystal would ask us over and over again, is the enemy slowing down? No. Okay. How, how are we doing? Are we keep, keeping up? No, but it's just not working. Okay, sweet. Is the enemy slowing down? No. Do you guys see the problem? You know, on video teleconference, you tell us all. So in all of JSOC, this is him talking now, I don't have anybody in this unit who can figure this out. That's what you guys are telling me. Millions of dollars in selection and training, and we just can't figure it out? He's like, the enemy is. So it, start, it basically started to be like, if you can't figure it out, you're going away. And eventually, now I know that's not so easy either, it's a whole other conversation, but you, you get the point. It was so painful. Like if you can feel the emotion coming out, I mean, I can remember the days when we just wanted to kill each other. But nothing was more important than addressing reality. Like, you so know. The other thing is from an org change model, um, when I've seen different teams that have tried this around the country and failed, it's typically the reason it I'm going to, again, probably piss off a lot of people. The reason it fails is because what you do is you get a bunch of graybeard firemen and a bunch of graybeard police cops. You try to put them in the same room and they spend all their time having the same arguments that have been having for 20 years. When Rickover created the nuclear um, sub, he basically said, all you diesel guys aren't coming. It was radical change. But Rickover said, we're building a new sub and we're going to build it from scratch. I think for this networked environment, that's probably what's going to have to happen. It's going to have to be piloted, it'll have to be phased, and it'll have to grow into it. 
I don't think you're going to be able to take existing people that are bought fully into the existing paradigm and say, guess what, kids? We're all going to play together now. It's just not built that way. And for good reason, by the way. Don't get me wrong. I actually, even though I'm saying all this, I don't see a world without the FDNY. I don't see a world without the Marine Corps. Oh, absolutely. Because the world needs them. But that's a different question than what we're talking about. And they have to recognize that both are true, if that makes sense. It's, it's really complicated. Thank you. And that makes sense. I mean, there are still places where the independent units will, uh, I mean, one of my best buddies from the Army who I didn't know until, you know, I started working inside of this majorly joint, he said, look, if there's a ship that needs to be boarded, that insanity that you guys do, driving the fast boats and a caving ladder and climbing up on the side of a ship, they, we're not doing any of that, you know, and they wouldn't. So that was still something that we held as individuals. You're not mixing everything, right? I think you guys, look, everybody says, like, we start... Everybody says the environment's moving faster and we all have a reason not to move fast with it. You know, as a generally speaking, we have to look at the problem set where we can mix is the point. Here's, here's yeah. what I would say, though, that's really interesting is that tough. everything you said is 100% true. What's also true around the country, not specifically for, say, the five boroughs, but around the country, is that that solution is no longer matching the emergent problem right. sets. So I'll give you an example. If we see a Mumbai incident in a big city in the United States, the current structure we have is insufficient to tackle that problem. So we know that that's true, what you're saying is true. This is also true. And somewhere in the middle, we're going to have to figure it out. All right. Well, thank you so much for Thanks. your time thank you. and your insight. What's next? Lunch. Let me confirm. What's next? Lunch. Jason, did you learn anything from Coleman and Preston during the discussion? Of course. <laughs> Preston is the kind of guy where every time I listen to him, and he's not the least bit condescending or arrogant. He's actually super down to earth. But every time I listen to him, I feel really uh, inadequate <laughs> intellectually when I listen to, to, to Preston. But I, I think one of the things about these guys is it goes back to the, the meta knowledge. Like you, you spend time with them listening and, and listening to, to the types of uh, problem sets that they've uh, – topics and themes that they've explored. And I think sometimes it's one of those things where it just comes back to how little we actually know about human behavior in mission-critical or high-risk high settings. The other takeaway is how much goes into being great and the level of preparation and detail that goes into really truly mm -hmm. being a high performer um, in an elite arena. I didn't know, I, I didn't really know how Preston would land with the audience, particularly given that a lot of the audience is, is kind of tactically minded. Left to their own devices, people would still be asking that guy questions. Oh yeah. 
<laughs> this event was, I mean, literally, literally, line, people they, would missed still, lunch. <laughs> they would still be asking him, him, him questions. I, yeah. He was certainly one of the, uh, one of the favorites this year with the, with the audience. And I have to say, I was impressed about the story about residue because I have a performing arts background and to hear that an actor had approached Preston about this was just another instance where I got excited and thought my worlds collide. But another part of the conversation that stands out in my mind is when Coleman was talking about or telling stories about changes made under General McChrystal and his visceral reaction to those memories. I mean, his fists were in the air, his eyes were closed, and you can hear it in the audio files, but to see it in person was very telling. So that was profound and something I I will keep with me. Leadership Under Fire podcast provides a platform that helps to prepare performance leaders to navigate the moral, mental, emotional, intellectual, and physical rigors in high-risk and ultra-competitive settings by developing strength of mind, body, character, and critical thought. For more on this, visit leadershipunderfire.com.